You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Over 7 million different animals inhabit our planet. You're right, you alluded to, there are, there are really two types of snakes, and I'll get to a little bit more in evolution, but the true sea snakes and then the sea crates. What can they teach us? Some of the cool adaptations they picked up when they were on land related to cobras, and somehow they decided to swim out in the sea, and they really enjoyed it, and they stayed longer and longer. Many species are in crisis and need your help. Join the movement at allcreaturespod.com. Welcome to the All Creatures Podcast. This is Chris. And I'm Angie. This is a big group today. This is a big, big group of animal species, whatever. (laughs) Oh, yeah, Chris. So many fun facts today. This week has been a blast watching videos and doing the research on sea snakes. I know. Yeah. It's back to the ocean, right? Well, yeah. And I think that you and I, obviously, everybody who listens to the podcast knows that we specialize in mammals, ungulates, things with hooves and horns and their physiology. So whenever we do a reptile, I have to put a lot more work into it. Mm-hmm. and into preparing for the podcast. And that's fun. That's why I love doing this show year after year because I learn so much and I get to animal dork out by myself late at night watching videos and uh, reading and reading and reading and reading. And But then you throw the fact that we're talking about on a marine reptile, which mm-hmm, mm-hmm. we've covered a few so far on the podcast. Yeah, uh, yeah, yeah the sea turtle and of course one of our best episodes ever the marine iguana but just it's just incredible i just am blown away by by all the physical adaptations for snakes which we all think of them on land under bushes and trees things like that to be spending their whole lives in the open ocean yeah yeah it's crazy I mean, this is these are some amazing animals and you know it's it's a complex family you know, so it, you know, seventeen genera, sixty nine species. We didn't pick a specific species this week because I don't see us doing a bunch of different sea snakes. I mean, we may in the future, you know, in three years, four years, who knows? But so I think today is just kind of what, just an overview and highlight and all the different species. Well, yeah, Chris, I spent a lot of time just looking at 
all the beautiful pictures because there's so many shades and color patterns. And I touch on the yellow-bellied sea snake. That's probably one of the more famous sea snakes. I know my kids know about them and there's, uh, I think, Octonauts and Wildcrat episodes about them. So they're pretty, pretty famous. And then, Chris, a few weeks ago, you sent me that article talking about the critically endangered leaf-scaled and short-nosed sea snake. So mm-hmm. I focused in a lot about them, too, found some uh, cool research papers just as we're learning more about them and trying to save them from extinction. They were actually thought to potentially be extinct, and now there's some mm-hmm. small new populations of them. So we'll talk. So I definitely want to highlight that story today, but... For our North American and South American listeners, you might not be as familiar with sea snakes. I know I wasn't just because they're not really found in our waters. So uh, we'll hopefully get you excited and learning about them and loving them. And for our listeners elsewhere in Australia and Asia and Indonesia, uh, this one's for you guys. Yeah, yeah. I mean, lots of sea snakes and and the the Western Pacific and parts of Africa, and obviously, uh, you know, the northern part of the Indian Ocean. Now, the yellow belly does range a little bit off, you know, the the coastal California because that one just that one has a huge range. That one ranges all over the Pacific Ocean. Yeah, yeah. As far as the, uh, the contiguous U.S., they say Hawaii, and I've actually done a lot mm-hmm. of. Uh, snorkeling in Hawaii. And I, I can say I've never seen one, darn it. Uh, I did see sea turtles, no, but yeah. so, yeah, but yeah. now I know, now I know to keep looking, right? Yeah, no, they're out there. They're out there. And hopefully today we'll bust a few myths about sea snakes because it is true that they are highly, highly venomous. Uh, but in the same instance, they rarely strike. They're pretty harmless and docile. So we'll talk about that when we get to behavior. And I know Chris is excited to talk about their venom. He loves to dork out about that. So yeah, yeah, of course, of course. Yeah. It's going to be a fun pod. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, just some of the physiology is just insane. It's, it's, it's just stay tuned. It's just some of the stuff they can do and live in the ocean and survive and thrive is just, it blows you away when you learn about these special creatures. Now, before we get rolling, just real quick, just a quick favor from us. If everyone listening, and we know there's thousands of you out there, if you could just share this episode or your favorite episode on social media, Angie and I will love you forever. It's, you know, we're all coming together, working for these animals, fighting for conservation and spreading the message because education is the only way we're going to be able to reverse these trends. We have to educate as many people as possible. So if you can just do that for us, thank you, thank you, thank you. And I know Angie's got a couple shout outs. Well, yeah. So we've been highlighting the ocean or species in the ocean this month, and we'll continue to do so uh, because we are celebrating at All Creatures Podcast Plastic Free July. And we have a team this year that is kicking butt. We're doing awesome. I mean, we're we're ranked pretty high with some big zoos and other organizations and just our, our little small group of eco-warriors. So it's not too late to join our team. We've had some people join just this past week. If you just go to plasticfree.ecochallenge.org and go under teams, list of teams, and search for All Creatures Podcast, you can join. And the whole movement is just to try to reduce our plastic consumption at home. And so there's little micro challenges. For instance, this week I'm learning all about environmental social justice, which is a really important topic. And just 
all these miniature challenges. I pick up trash every day and you can do whatever suits your lifestyle and what you want to learn more about. So it's really fun and it's interactive and uh, we would love to have you join us just to learn more about what we're doing. And if you follow us on social media like Facebook or uh, Instagram, we're also putting some updates on there. And then of course, if you can take a two minutes out of your day and give us um, a written review, a five-star written review on iTunes. That would be awesome. That really helps Chris and I get exposure and continuing more people seeing this free content to help conserve species. And so just a quick shout out to Whale Walker and Nick this week that gave us great reviews. So thank you to those reviews and please keep them coming. No, it really does help us and, you know, get more exposure. And thank you for all the kind emails. It just really keeps Angie and I going, you know, and, and doing this research. Now, Angie, I know this is a, such a wide range of species, but, you know, there's a lot of similarities in their description, you know, just size wise. I mean, some of them up to almost five feet, 150 centimeters, which is pretty big. I mean, that's pretty big for a snake. Mm-hmm. The bi- the biggest one I saw was Hydrophis spiralis, the yellow sea snake. It measured almost three meters or almost 10 feet, which is huge. That's a big snake. Yeah. When I was reading, the smallest uh, was is only like 50 centimeters or 20 inches. So that's tiny. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Definitely a a wide, a wide variety in their size. Uh, But on average, I think it was about two meters long. And sea snakes will typically have a smallish head for its body size, which I've always found that charming. One of my kitty cats at home, Bear Bear, she has a a, a small head for her large size. Yeah, Yeah, but she's Uh, so cute. She can get away with it. But for sea snakes, too, a really distinguishing feature is that their tails are flattened. Uh, Some call them either paddle-like or oar-like. And of course, this helps them propel through the water. And almost looks like an eel, right? I mean, almost. Yes. Right? Well, yeah. that's where yeah. I, being uneducated previously when I was uh, snorkeling off the coast of Hawaii, and I, I wonder, you know, I don't think I, I, something that yellow would be very striking. So I've mm-hmm. definitely seen a few eels. Uh, mm-hmm. But yeah, they can, they're definitely from the tail part that I think that they can be mistaken with an eel. And although their heads are small for their body size, like I mentioned, they do still have a head that looks like a snake, an average snake that you might see in your yard, in my in my opinion. But their coloration and their color patterns is what, to me, is so striking. And there's just some really beautiful flamboyant out, ones out there, especially with like the sea crates, which I know you're going to talk about when we get to mm-hmm. the different species where they have these really cool banded patterns from white to Mm -hmm. black to yellow to Mm -hmm. black, um, some reds mixed in there. And then, of course, the popular yellow-bellied sea snake that's yellow on the bottom and darker colored on top, just really striking and beautiful. And then there's some uniformly colored sea snakes, which I guess it's a nice way to say boring, you know, either just like brown or or tan or something. And then there's ones that have patterns that are very in my opinion, remind me of a lot of the snakes on land where it's kind of molted browns and grays. For instance, the leaf-scaled sea snake and the short-nosed sea snake. Boy, that's going to that's gonna be a tongue twister this week, but I, I'll yeah, get I know, through it. I'm drinking, I'm drinking my coffee right now. Yeah, that's um, right, that's right. But yeah, they basically will have 
an, you know, an alteration of color patterns of like light brown to dark brown. Um, so they have cool patterns to them. They're just not as brilliant as some of the more banded sea snakes or crates. You're right, Angie. You alluded to there are there are really two types of snakes, and I'll get to a little bit more in evolution. But the true sea snakes, and then the sea crates. And I think the biggest difference between the two is true sea snakes always stay out at the sea, where crates may come up on land. So you know, even yeah. though they don't, yeah, and they don't act like real snakes on land, right? They're kind of awkward. Yeah, they're they're not they're not the most agile. uh, But yeah, the the crates will come out on land to rest. They'll go up into trees, but really close to shore. And then sea crates will also lay their eggs on land. Where when we talk Mm -hmm. about reproduction, we're gonna have a lot of fun because true sea snakes are truly in the water all the time. Yeah, I know, including giving birth. So it's, it's super fun. And they're they're That's the thing is those true sea snakes are committed. They are in the water their whole lives for the most part. Yeah. 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 Pretty much. Pretty much. Now why care about sea snakes? I mean, we've done a lot on snakes on land. Sure. You know, that they are important for uh, population control of, of certain animals, you know, mice, rodents, other things, depending on the snake. Whereas these are really critical to you know, you know, control again of fish and around reefs, right? I mean, they're 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 kind of one of a not a top ocean predator, but they are an important predator around a reef ecosystem. Oh yeah, Chris, for sure, they're part of the reef ecosystems, and we know that a lot of our reefs um, everywhere in the world are in crisis due to polluted oceans, overfishing. And so it's a unique niche that have evolved over millennia to have all these species species interactions of who eats who and how often. And sea snakes in general are going to prey on small fish and eels and eggs. And they help keep certain populations from exploding and these smaller fish and certain species of eels and other things that they eat, if sea snakes aren't around, then the balance is going to be thrown off and there's going to be too many of them and they're going to overeat their different types of food. And so it's really just a very specialized habitat. And a quick little hint, or I don't want to do a full-on spoiler alert, but next week we're going to dive deeper into the coral reef systems and what actually make Mm. them up. So it's going to be a really fun one. I've got to actually get doing my research because I know me too. <laughs> I actually I'm one of the best sleepers in the world, Chris. Like if I can't go to sleep, you know that I'm anxious about something. And last yeah. night I was like, oh man, I really I got to I got to get going on the species that we're covering next yeah. week because next week. it is yeah. it it's a doozy for me, really out of my comfort zone. But yeah. that's that's why we love our audience. We will we yeah. will. Learn to be comfortable being uncomfortable for you yeah. and and yeah, also yeah. for coral reefs and shallow reef waters mm-hmm. uh, because mm-hmm. they're so important. And learning about sea snakes this week and learning about how they are an intricate part of that ecosystem just made me get more excited about the reefs and why why we should care in general about an important species like you said almost a top predator mm-hmm. in this yeah, in yeah. in the reef ecosystem but chris what also got me really excited is the article that you sent me a few weeks ago prepping for sea snakes and as we mentioned earlier in the podcast about the critically endangered leaf-scaled and short-nosed sea snakes i went ahead and looked up the research article 
addressing these populations off the northwestern coast of Australia. And the paper was in PLOS One, and it's entitled Molecules Morphology Reveal Overlooked Populations of Two Presumed Extinct Australian Sea Snakes. And what happened was, and why this got me really just excited about what we don't know and what we're learning about so many species out there, not just sea snakes, but uh, other ones, is that researchers basically thought that these two sea snakes, the leaf-scaled and the short-nosed, were extinct. These guys were historically only found in Ashmore and Hibernera reefs, which are about 600 kilometers off northwestern Australia coast. And researchers surveyed these reefs in 1974, 1994, 2007, 2012, 2013, and they talked about how their populations are just crashing, like down 90%. And then they went out in 2001, 2005, 2007, 12, 13, and couldn't find any, not a single specimen. And so they basically declared them extinct or functionally extinct because they just weren't finding them in this habitat. Well, this group of researchers went out now with all the cool scientific technologies we have, and they got DNA samples from a couple specimens that had washed washed up onshore far away from those reefs in 1982 and then I think one in 2010. And these specimens were collected were considered to be vagrants or basically like outliers. Like, oh, they got caught in a storm, which I know you'll talk about when we get to yellow-bellieds and and how they move around all over the place. But they just assumed that that these two samples of the leaf-scaled and the short-nosed sea snake must have just drifted far, far away from the Ashmore and Hibernia reefs. And so, but Chris, what the molecular DNA data showed was that these were actually other populations of like breeding populations. So really important examples of leaf-scaled and short-nosed sea snakes that that researchers think are found in other parts of Northwest Australia. In -hmm. other tiny, like they're more, uh, that they might be found in deeper water or other reefs. And so now there's been this resurgence of conservation efforts and searching for this extinct species. And the IUCN has declared these two species, the leaf-scaled and short-nosed sea snakes, as critically endangered because they do think that there is a, a like basically like three small populations of them. And so there's been a lot of efforts in place to conserve. And fingers crossed that these two species that were thought to be extinct can now survive. And so it's just a really hopeful and heartwarming story to me personally that does this week in and week out of of conservation and science and, oh my gosh, the researchers, those conservation heroes that are fighting for these guys and people that are donating money to help uh, restore and save these coral reefs. And so I just it just gets me excited in uh and knowing that uh there's so many people fighting the good fight out there and that uh it's always for me it's always exciting when a a species that was thought to be extinct is extinct, resurrected. Yeah. 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 I know, I know and then people rush to save it which is amazing when they do it. I mean, you know, we're going to finish with conservation at the end. There there's not a lot known with sea snakes. No, know, definitely not. 
No. And, you know, and, and we're really focused on the ocean this month and we know the oceans are in peril. We know that. And so I kind of went and looked at, you know, the Great Barrier Reef and. Oh, so you, you were more Eastern Australia. I, I focused a little bit more on Western yeah. Australia. this week. Yeah, yeah, but it was, you know, because that's a that's a, a major hot spot, right? Tourist oh, yeah. Hot spot, lots of sea snakes there. And so I was just kind of curious and. Did you see any sea snakes? Because you you've dove the reef, the Great Barrier Reef before, I've, right? Yeah, yeah, years ago. And no, I didn't see any sea snakes. Did oh god, I can't remember what I saw there because I've you know I've gone and done Hawaii and some other places after that. So yeah, well, it's time uh, to go back, no, my friend. Seen, yeah, I've not seen a sea snake because okay. you know I would have been like one of those little scared little girly boys, like oh no. <laughs> but you know? now, now that you've educated <laughs> oh, no, yourself no, and educated others, yeah. Uh, yeah. but it sounds to me, Chris, like it's time for you to go back, both of us to go back. So all Absolutely. of our, um, all of our Australian friends, we got extra couches, you know, yeah. <laughs> once us... you guys open up, we're coming, we're coming. Yeah. <laughs> Just open your country up in COVID. <laughs> but you know, the, the Great Barrier Reef, Angie and I talk about it all the time. It's, you know, but we haven't really detailed it. And, and this week and next week and maybe the week after, we'll, we'll detail a little bit more uh, with the things we have coming. But, you know, what it is, is, is the Great Barrier Reefs is about 3,800 reefs and atolls throughout the Coral Sea. And, the, and together, they form the largest living structure on Earth, which is crazy if you think about it. That's that is amazing. Nuts. Yeah. yeah. Now, what the data is saying is more than 60% of the Great Barrier Reef has been bleached. and That's crazy. Yeah. And, you know, with bleaching, the, the reefs can recover. We're, we're going to get more in this the next couple of weeks. But they can recover. But 30% of the Great Barrier Reef is now dead. So almost a third of it is now dead. And, you know, the question is why? I mean, the, the big thing is, is climate change. Mm -hmm. That is a major problem because the oceans are warming. They're becoming more acidic. That is leading to the death of these reefs and these reef systems. Now, the Great Barrier Reef also, and this was interesting to me to read, they're getting a ton of mass runoff uh, from the topsoil into the Coral Sea from North Queensland because of massive deforestation. It's actually one of the hot spots. We haven't really talked about that. I've never really even thought about that rainforest. I've been there, the Dane Tree up near Townsville and up to Cairns. Or, you know, I've driven, I've flown up there, I've been there. That's where I dove. A beautiful, beautiful part of the world. And that is where a lot of forests are being torn down for cattle, crops, other things. So a lot of that runoff with the heavy rains that come pour into the coral sea and that is also having a devastating effect on the reef system interesting yeah yeah so the reason i dove down that rabbit hole was because i really feel sea snakes give some insight into that degrading habitat and you know sea snakes as a species are going to be impacted and have been impacted by these reef systems disintegrating you know, and disappearing. They, they, I've seen videos of, you know, people going and looking at these dead reef systems. It's horrific. There's very few fish, if any, it's just dead. It's a dead yeah. ecosystem. It's really tragic. It's really tragic. Well, Chris, it's all interconnected too, because 
Most sea snakes live, as we mentioned, in the shallow waters off just off the coast in these reef systems. Mm-hmm. But there are some that are found in estuaries, mangrove swamps. Some of them are found in open oceans as well. So there's just so many different issues in our waterways mm-hmm. that they're facing. Mm-hmm. Yeah, from basically no, from the coast from the coastline, yeah, from from the estuaries or mangroves out, right? To deep oceans. So it's yeah. tough out there. Yeah, yeah. And I mean it's you know, it's not only the Great Barrier Reef disintegrating and and, and dying off, having effects on the sea snakes there, but the pro- specifically what d- drove me down this rabbit hole was the thing is with sea snakes is they don't disperse well generally, most of them. Correct. In yeah. the water. They stay in a certain ecosystem and they stay there and they thrive and do well, but they don't get widely dispersed. So there was a paper I read. It was out of Biological Journal out of 2020, out of Australia, talking about the population of sea snakes and is constrained by ambient thermal homogeneity and small prey size. Basically, they looked at the turtle-headed sea snake off New Caledonia, and they were just saying that the species, what they were saying is they found the species don't migrate. They don't move mass distances, which affects genetics, which we know. You know, you're not getting genetic variability because they're not moving around a lot to breed with different populations. But the, the, the thing I was looking at from conservation was when you go in and kill off a reef system or kill off sea snakes in a certain area, basically it takes a really, 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 really long time for them to come back in that area. So where we have some other species that, you know, they may be wiped out in an area, they can come kind of slowly come back, you know, or come back a little bit quicker. Sea snakes take forever. Well, and you bring up a really good point. Well, yeah, Chris, you bring up a really good point about basically their their life cycle and how long they live. I thought it was really interesting to find out that they live anywhere from eight to 10 years. There's still a lot of data that we don't know, but they don't reach maturity until they're about two years old. So they can't reproduce their own offspring until they're two. And so they're going to be a little bit slower to bounce back on a reef system than fish or something like that with Mm -hmm. a much with a much shorter uh, generational cycle. So, yeah, I think it's it's really quite interesting. And, and considering their important role in a healthy reef system, mm-hmm. we got to keep an eye on these guys. Yeah, yeah. No, you're right. You look, you know, and you look at the entire ecosystem and you start to, again, you start taking species out, the whole ecosystem can and has to, has to collapse in certain ecosystems. You know, it was, just, it was just making me think too, Angie, you know, this whole COVID thing at the beginning of lockdown across the world, you know, unprecedented. And remember how wildlife was starting to come back in certain areas, you know? Yeah, there was a kangaroo down. hopping down a, one of the yeah. major cities. I don't know if it's Melbourne yeah. or Sydney Probably. on a highway. Yeah. It was on a highway. I'm like, yeah. dang, that's nuts. Yeah, but they were coming back. You know, sure. the, the, these animals were coming back into major urban areas. Mm-hmm. That can't happen with the sea snake because, you know, all traffic stopped, all humanity stopped and animals kept creeping in like, oh, we're going to take this back over. Imagine if if there were no people coming back, you know, those kangaroos would have moved in. Sure. Coyotes would have set up downtown San Francisco. They they were wandering the streets. 
you know, they would just start proliferating, doing really well as they took back over the land. That doesn't happen with sea snakes. It takes a long, 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 long time. So oh, anyways. Yeah. 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 So that's that's why, you know, we got to keep an eye on them. Now, evolution wise, uh, you know, we've covered plenty of snakes, you know, really quickly. They think about 175 million years ago that snakes evolved from lizards, you know, that the the limbless lizards that they had way back then. So the oldest snake fossils we have are Eophis under Woody, Southern England, 167 million years ago. So we know that's when snakes kind of started. Now competing with dinosaurs and other animals at the time, they didn't do that great. It wasn't until dinosaurs died off that then snakes just took off. The first confirmed venomous snakes were in Africa, the elipids about 25 million years ago. Now, what we do know about sea snakes specifically is they evolved in Southeast Asia about six to eight million years ago, and the majority of species about one to three million years ago, which today, so these, these snakes have been around for millions of years. Sure. You know, millions of years. Now, I thought it was curious, just real quick to throw this in, because last week, so last week we were trying to figure out why there was no albatross in the Atlantic. And I did a little digging. I still got to hear from Jesse. I and mean, when I see Jesse, I'll have a talk with him. Why they weren't. I think it was the warming at the period at the time. So they never got established. But, you know, like you said, there's no sea snakes in the Atlantic. Exactly. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So basically, they what, they what I read was by the time sea snakes like the yellow bellied got across the Pacific the Panama Isthmus was already closed. So there was no way for them to migrate over. Oh, interesting. Into okay. The, yeah. Into the Caribbean. Cause it's a perfect environment for them. I would Caribbean, love to see yeah. them in our coral reefs and off yeah. the Florida Keys. That would be amazing. Yeah. Right. But they're not there. Yeah. 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 Nope. You can nope, see lots of other cool there. species that we're hint, hint going to be talking about soon, but yeah, soon. yeah, but not sea snakes. <laughs> so no, no. Now, for snakes, again, there's over 3,600 species, 20 different families, just tons of them. Now, the sea snakes come from a very famous family of snakes. You know yes. it. You already know it. I'm sure you do. So oh, yeah, Chris. That was yeah. one of the first amazing facts that I learned was that sea snakes are in the family of Elapidae, which yeah. are it's a cobra family, and we yeah. have to cover the king cobra. I don't know how many pods. It feels like years ago, but it wasn't that long ago. King cobra? No, yeah, it was like what? 10, 15 pods ago. Yeah, it wasn't yeah. that long ago. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Time, yeah. time flies when you're having fun. Yeah, yeah. No, yeah, I thought it was amazing. Yeah, they, so the lapidae, so related to the cobra family, but these ones went into the ocean. Now, sea snakes are the subfamily hydrophinae, so that's the subfamily. Within that, so these are the sea snakes and sea crates, like all of them. So there's 17 genera with 69 species. And they... Yes, but I was... I don't know if you had this problem. This was one of the more controversial total number of species. I read 52. I read 30 to 50. 69 uh, was another one. So I... uh, I think it's changing a little bit every now and then. There's probably a little bit of controversy of how many different species slash subspecies there are, but it's a big group. We can't even decide if there's two species of African elephant or one. 
So imagine you have 60 to 70, you know, scientists don't like to agree on things. We like to argue. It's just, well, that's what makes science awesome is that, yeah, you get channel, your hypothesis gets challenged and that's the whole point of it. Right. And then we have all this new molecular data and, and looking at mitochondrial DNA, maternal DNA. I mean, there's just so many cool things out there that are uh, above my pay scale. That's for sure. So I'll just have to go with the experts that there are about 69. (laughs) Yeah. About, about that many. Yeah. 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 I mean, it's amazing. Like the, the different genre, I mean, you know, some have one species where you're going to find the, the sea snakes has 36. I mean, you have the spiny headed sea snake or horned sea snake. That's, it's got its own genus and everything. And mm-hmm. that's in, in Southeast Asia. You go to beaked sea snakes. Again, two species within that family. Um, see, you know, yellow-bellied we talked about. So they're their own genre of palamus. But the two big ones are the sea snakes and then the sea crates. Mm-hmm. So the sea snakes are from the genus Hydrophis which has mm-hmm. 36 supposed species, 36. Mm-hmm. And then, then the sea crates, you have Lodicata, which has eight species. Okay. So that's the majority of them. Then you have all these other ones that are, are breaking out. And it's probably because, like you said, they're they're getting DNA evidence and said, well, no, it doesn't belong to the, the sea snake family. It's its own genre, you know? Right. So who knows? Maybe we'll have 30-something genre pretty quick. So that, that's kind of an overview of the evolution. I mean, a lot of them, you know, amazing species. Now, we know the the, the largest snake ever found, right? Oh, yes. yeah. Okay. South America. Yeah, good old Titanoboa. Okay. Mm-hmm. How about the smallest snake? Oh, I just want to cup it in my hand. I don't know. Have you seen it? Mm-mm. You can't cup it in your hand. It's tiny. I I know. That's just what I'm picturing. It's like a dream. I love snakes. So especially little ones you can cup in your hand. This thing, okay, less than two and a half centimeters long. Cute. Tiny. I'm in. Is the girth of a strand of spaghetti. Ooh. It's tiny. That's fragile. Yeah. Yeah. It is Leptoflips carlae. And it was found... In 2008, off the island of Barbados. Does this it have thing, a oh, Barbados? Nice. Does it have a common is, name? Yeah, this is commonly called the Barbados thread snake. Cute. You can cup okay. it in your hand. It is tiny. Mm. It looks like a tiny worm. Not even an earthworm, because earthworms are too big compared They're to fat, this thing. Yeah. This, an earthworm would eat this thing. <laughs> like, <laughs> That's so. awesome. Yeah, they're super cute, super cute. So that's the smallest snake. I don't know what we're going to find for the next snake uh, we do, but I'll find something fun. I'm Jane Perlez, longtime foreign correspondent and former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. I've been a foreign correspondent in lots of places, Somalia, Indonesia, Pakistan, but nowhere as important to the world as China. I mean, China is not dropping anti-democratic paratroopers into Montana. But of course, we did see things like the weather balloon slash spy balloon riveting the whole country for a week. This is Face Off, an eight-part series in which we'll take you behind the scenes to key moments in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. We'll speak with a diplomat, a spy, a tech reporter, a U.S. admiral, even Yo-Yo Ma. 
Plus, my pal and noted China historian Rana Mitter joins the conversation. We'll look at what's driving the two nations apart and explore whether anything can help bring them back together. Face-off launches April 9th. So, AJ, when you're talking about where these live, I mean, the shallower reef systems make sense because they're breathing. The, they do have to breathe air. Now, the true sea snakes can remain submerged for a while, right? Yeah, I was reading anywhere between an hour and a half to three and a half hours. Three and yeah, a half hours, wow. Chris. Yeah, but the yeah. average the average dive to hunt and do whatever is about 30 minutes. But still, 30 minutes. Yeah. I mean, yeah. it's crazy. Now, they do that. Why? How can they do that, right? Like, that was the question. How can they stay down so long? We always ask that question. Well, Chris, I think it's really important to note, too, that Sea snakes do not have gills, right? Like mm-hmm, eels. Mm-hmm. They look like eels. Eels are in the fish family. Eels have gills. But sea snakes breathe air. And whatever, in some of the cool adaptations they picked up when they were on land related to cobras and somehow they decided to swim out in the sea and they really enjoyed it and they stayed longer and longer and longer. And then over millennia, their bodies started to adapt. And so their lungs adapted big time. And the lung in sea snakes has become very large. And Chris, it actually extends almost the entire length of their body. Mm-hmm. It's crazy. Which is crazy. Yeah, and yeah. researchers think that the, the rear or the back portion developed this elongation to actually help with buoyancy and not necessarily as much with gas exchanges. But when you have a lot of surface area to do respiration, right, to basically take in oxygen from the air you breathe and then respire out carbon dioxide, that they can gain more, they have more oxygen available to them because of this large lung per surface area of their body size. Mm -hmm. But it doesn't end there. Sea snakes have the really unique and really cool ability to do something called cutaneous breathing. So cutaneous, if you think of like cuticles or whatever, that's your skin. So they have the ability Mm -hmm. to remove oxygen from the water and release carbon dioxide. And researchers think that this crazy gnarly and super unique, okay, uh, marine reptiles did not do this and sea turtles Mm. do not do this, to my knowledge. Please correct me if I'm wrong, any of my marine reptile experts out there. But Chris, the way that this sea snake does this is that they have teeny tiny blood vessels on the cutaneous layer of their skin. And all this vast network of blood vessels allows them to draw in oxygen that is in the water Mm -hmm. and basically release, diffuse out through diffusion, carbon dioxide. And yeah, researchers think this might account for up to 25 to 33% of the sea snake's oxygen requirements, which helps them with these like these long which helps them with these lengthy dives. So when they are staying down there for two hours, they do some skin breathing. And yeah. I don't know, Chris, this is just when I was like, oh, these guys are like aliens. This is awesome. They like, are. They are. They are. I mean, the only other – but amphibians do that, right? Frogs and sure. some some other some other animals like that, but not a reptile. I've never heard a reptile breathing through the skin. 
Yeah. I mean, that's when we talk about these gnarly adaptations that they've made to live their whole life in the sea. And that's just not another reason why I fell in love with them this week. Yeah. No, I mean, some. so another cool one I found, Angie, was the tongue. So they do flick their tongues like a snake. And we, we covered mm-hmm. this, God, I remember which snake it was way back when, but how they use that for sensory information it tells them left, right, or straight ahead with the forked tongue. Forked tongue. Now, sea snakes do that too. I guess their tongue's shorter because it's easier to taste molecules in the water. Like what? <laughs> like, they taste the water. Well, I- yeah. Well, it, I mean, if you're a snake on land, Chris, you're relying heavily on vision and chemoreception and hearing and things like that in order to in order to find your prey. But a lot of these senses become either diluted or distorted in water. And so researchers think that vision is important for sea snakes, but that it might not be as available or as or may have like a limited role in actually catching prey or in selecting a mate. But scientists think instead, or in addition to the normal senses, that sea snakes can sense water vibrations. And of course, like you mentioned too, there is some chemoreception through the tongue. And just like land snakes, sea snakes have the vomeral nasal organ, which is basically the way that they can sense chemical odors by the tongue. So researchers think that's important. But this water vibration sensing, they haven't pinpointed it, but they've done experiments and found that just by water vibrations, the sea snakes can react to prey. Mm -hmm. But they did say that their reaction and their ability to detect and sense movement of prey only with only the water vibrations is somewhat limited. It's not as good as the lateral line in fish systems we've talked about, like in sharks mm-hmm, and other things mm-hmm, like that, mm-hmm. where they're they're picking up on ver- vibrations big time. Uh, so they have it, but and they in researchers have found that they have auditorial brain responses to these water vibrations, but they don't necessarily know exactly which body part or how they're able to do it. So all you young researchers out there, if you want to solve a mystery, go for it. See snakes and how they how they actually can feel or sense this water vibration, water movement. There was a study on one species of sea snake called the Lapimus curtis that uh, found these sea snakes had mechanoreceptors on their head. And similar to like alligators and other reptiles. So it, it probably is tied into that system as well. But yeah, I, some of these adaptations, we're still trying to figure out how they do what they do by yeah. taking their normal vision and hearing and odor sensing senses and putting them in water and using that to be able to catch prey and be pretty successful at it. So it's insane. Uh, yeah, yeah, and they they have they researchers haven't totally ruled it out, but they're pretty sure that they don't use electromagnetic uh reception which we've talked about in a lot of in a lot of marine species. So, uh but it's just hard to perform tests on a lot of these creatures and uh and of course research money and things like that. 
Yeah, no, it, it made me think of the electric eel and those lateral lines when we covered them, like how cool it was. And they, yeah, just all this. Oh, that was such a fun episode. Go back yeah. and listen to that one, folks. That, if you haven't, that one's so great. And then being in, in, in one of the things I was interested in, and, and we'll talk a little bit about nutrition, was, you know, being an aquatic species. I know last week we talked about it with the albatross. Then we talked about a marine iguanas, but that's, you know, being an animal that lives in these highly, you know, ocean sea salt, you know, I was reading something, they, they just have special adaptations with that tongue, right? So yeah, Chris, it's super cool. Sea snakes have a salt gland under their tongue, which re- releases or secretes just like a normal gland, salt. High concentrations of salt that are taken in from the water are then excreted through this gland under their tongue. It's just another one of these awesome adaptations that they have to living in a marine environment. And for anybody who's spent a lot of time in the ocean knows that you, you know, you ingest a little bit more salt than you want to. Right. So, and especially when they're eating, right, they're eating all the the salty fish and water while they're catching it and things like that. Uh, And so what I also found fascinating too, is for anybody who spent a lot of time in the water knows uh, that it's, it's hard when you dive to not get water up your nose. You can easily not get it in your mouth by closing your mouth. And it's so funny. We're working with Zachary on swimming. Xander's already an excellent swimmer. He's like a little dolphin, Mm -hmm. but we're, uh, we're trying to get Zach going and he is so cute and so happy all the time. He always has his darn mouth open as we're riding the waves in the pool. And I'm like, and I'm always like, Zachy, close your mouth, close your mouth. Cause he's just, you know, he's getting all this water, all this salty water or fresh water for in Lake Michigan or wherever we are. And I, and I tell him to quit giggling and quit smiling, but he's a happy dude and it's kind of hard for him. But anybody who's snorkeled or spent a lot of time diving in, in large bodies of water, getting water up your nose is horrible and painful. And, uh, it, uh, it's almost as bad as the COVID test. I had one to get back to work a few weeks ago, and that thing was not fun. I was, oh, yeah. <laughs> was, was up my way nose. up your nose, don't they? Uh, yeah, it was. Yeah. It was in my brain. Uh, it yeah. was. It felt like a brain, and I won't even say tickle. It felt like a brain yeah. scrape. Uh, I know they've yeah. gotten better. Uh, this was a, a little bit ago. I know I've heard since, mm-hmm. and they've gotten better about uh, not having to go as deep. But, yeah. but I related it to getting a whole bunch of water up your nose, and even and then mm-hmm. that feeling afterwards, and. So nobody likes that. And so here I'm thinking with these marine reptiles, how do they dive, stay underwater for so long and not get water up their nose or basically into their lungs, right? That's that's what we don't want. And so sea snakes have adapted this cool nostril valve that actually opens inward. And so when they're in the water, it's held shut by specialized tissue that can keep it sealed. And so, Chris, this is also really important for when a sea snake surfaces to breathe, it has to have its head just a little bit. It doesn't out of the water to open up those nostrils, breathe, and then dive right back down. So just another way that they're able to be fully aquatic and Swim around those coral reefs all day. Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, well, another thing. Okay, so one thing we know, this is right before I get to venom, is snakes need to help with thermal regulation. Right, they're an ectotherm, so they need external heat generally to stay alive, metabolism, digest food. So right, that's I mean, why like, snakes. Yeah, you, you think of a land snake and you. 
Think of it basking in the sun, right? To, right, to right. Warm yeah. up and digest yeah, its food. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Or, or, you know, down there in Florida. Well, you know, if you're in Michigan right now, but down in Florida where you call home, the gators are always out basking in the sun because they need it. Yeah, they need, need right. it to warm up. Sea snakes generally don't because the water, so you, you think about where they live. They live in warm, temperate waters in the tropics. So water conducts heat so effectively that their bodies actually stay warm enough for them to survive. Now, some that might go further north or further south may have to come up to the surface and bask in the sun. So that yellow-bellied one, I guarantee you that one that crosses the ocean probably comes up to warm up because the oceans, you know, deep ocean is not warmer than, say, the tropics, right? Right. But most don't, which is cool. Like, that's that's a crazy. They just live like an eel and they're fine and they're, you know, thermoregulating just fine. One other cool real fact what I found is that some sea snakes actually have sea snake barnacles on them, <laughs> which they hitch a ride, which is hilarious. <laughs> and sea crates, they actually have ticks on them, which is just gross. But, you know, because they these are the ones that do come up on land. Mm-hmm. So they may pick up on some ticks and they have some parasites in there on them, which is kind of, ugh. but they do have things that, that hitch rides. Well, yeah, and, but but just like land snakes, they shed their skin every two to six weeks. And so that helps them remove any unwanted pests uh, that they that they may acquire. So there's yeah, still, yeah, <laughs> which I don't know. I just found that, of course, I'm familiar with the fact that land snakes do that. Uh, but yeah, I, I guess I, it's just interesting to me that an aquatic snake needs to shed its skin even after it's full mm-hmm. grown. Uh, but they go ahead and do that process, which once again is totally different than a fish or an eel, right? They don't experience a, no. a skin shed. So just cool stuff. Fun to think about. Yeah, it, it is fascinating, Angie. So just really quick on nutrition. You know, most sea snakes feed on fish, uh, eels, maybe crustaceans. Uh, I've seen yeah, fish eggs. I read young octopus. Mm-hmm. I don't know if you saw mm-hmm. anything else. Yeah, I love this term. I love when I can learn things. Uh, yeah, Chris, I was reading one article that described them as benthic foragers. I really like that. I mean, they're oh, carnivores, yeah, but yeah. I like the I yeah, like yeah. the benthic part. It's just fun when you learn yeah, that's cool. different concepts. And one of the things that going back to thermoregulation and, and nutrition is, you know, we talk about these animals basking in the sun. A lot of times it helps aid in digestion. So one of the things is is the reason these snakes can't survive in cooler waters is it's not warm enough and they won't be able to adjust their food and they'll die, right? I mean, that's just one mm-hmm. of the things with, with, with some reptiles. Now, this was interesting, Angie. They need fresh water, right? And sure, they can't who doesn't? Extract, yeah, they can extract it like some, some animals. So the crates, they think, drinks it from land or on the surface – True sea snakes, this is fascinating, they have to wait for the rain so then they can go up and drink water on the sea surface that is less salty. And they said that they actually can die of thirst. That's one of the reasons they may die. Wow. I mean, yeah, yeah, Chris, just what a unique workaround, right? What What a cool way to figure out a problem, physiologically speaking, and then solve it. And I guess I'd it makes sense, especially on those big hard rains, 
how the water is going to be less salty on top, but so cool, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's just, it's these, these, these just to live in that environment is amazing what they've done uh, through the years. Now, before we jump to behavior, Angie, real quick, uh, sea snakes are preyed upon uh, by bigger eels, sharks, mm-hmm. uh, fish, sea eagles, other seabirds, crocodiles. So they're not at the top of the food chain. You know, they're probably in the middle somewhere in there. Now, with that all being said, Angie, that leads me to sea snake venom. Now, all sea snakes are venomous, and they use it to not only catch prey, but to defend themselves, right? Mm-hmm. But it isn't the most potent venom in the world, but it is very potent, right? These neurotoxins, myotoxins, this cocktail, it's nasty, nasty stuff. It's more potent than a king cobra's venom. But yeah, I read somewhere ten times ten times more than a rattlesnake, I, and I like those little numbers. I mean, to me, I don't want to get bit by a rattlesnake, yeah, or a sea snake. <laughs> like it's all bad yeah, to me, yeah, <laughs> right? Yeah, 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 yeah. But like you said, you really, like you said earlier in the podcast, you've really got to agitate them and mess with them, and really like try, and then they'll bite you, right? I mean, they're not, they're not. Yeah, they're they're docile. They're they're just like all snakes in general, they're more scared of you than you are of them. And well, and the other thing too, I think that's fascinating about a sea snake is that they're they're front fanged. And in general, of course, when they're swimming along, the fangs fold into the gums and they're hidden. But when they are going to go, when they are going to bite, the fangs quickly emerge, but their fangs are short and fragile. And so a lot of the times the fangs will break off into the victim. So researchers think that because they have these short-ish compared to other species uh, fangs and they're weak, that their venom is more potent to basically make up for for it. And Mm -hmm. because of these short fangs too, that actually really rare for a diver, even if they were to get bit, which is very rare, they would almost have to be asking for it. If a diver was to get bit, that the fangs may not even penetrate through the diver's uh, wetsuit because they mm. are that short and that weak, if you will. And and it's just it's just so so rare. I don't know. Did you find any statistics on how many humans are actually killed uh, by sea snakes? No, I didn't find anything specific, Angie. There, there just there was one in 2018. It was like one of the first of the kind in in Australia, where a young man was uh, bitten in Australia by a sea snake. And yeah, he was like a rare. fisherman, right? And yeah, yeah and then I read really that rare. there there yeah. was a, a pearl diver uh, in 1935 that was killed. But it's, I mean, if that's all we could find, it it goes to show that they're it's it's pretty rare. Uh, and they really are not going to bite unless they're super threatened. Uh, sea crates, which are the snakes that go out on land, they are not very agile. They're a little awkward on land. And so they are going to be more, uh, more aggressive on land because they just feel super threatened because they can't move super fast. So just if you leave them alone and let them just you know move up the beach to their tree where they're going to go hide or lay their eggs in, 
they're going to leave you alone. They're not coming after you. They don't move fast. But if you mess with them, they're going to strike more because they are, they just are, they're extra fearful and they know that they're vulnerable on land. Uh, but in the water, they also have other defense mechanisms. Um, they'll poop, they'll maybe release like a, a musky liquid or spray. So they will even do things before they actually bite. But if a bite does occur, uh, it's, I think because their fangs are so small, it's often painless. And um, sometimes they'll leave a tooth behind. And there may or may not be a little swelling, but your muscles will be sore. And then you'll, so if you don't get treatment soon, you can end up paralyzed. And then, of course, mm-hmm. uh, worst case scenarios uh, die. But once again, it's just so, so, so rare that uh, you pretty much have to grab them up for them to even want to bite you. And obviously, yeah. most people that are diving, I, mean, I, watch, I watch tons of videos of divers fil- you know, filming and swimming like right next to them. And they, they could care less. They weren't trying to bite them. No, no. And it kind of reminds me, you remember the world's deadliest animal is? Uh, Australia. Yeah, always Australia. Always so, Australia. We love you, Australia. Yeah, we do. You guys are tough. No, the, the blue ring octopus, right? So it, that's the mm-hmm. most, you know, that thing gets a hold of you. It could kill you quick, but it's so super rare. They just, they won't, they just want to be left alone. They don't want uh, you messing with them. So. Anyways, so what are some of the things we do know? It's it's you know this this animal is kind of mysterious, right? I mean, there's that's not what a I'm saying. It's, it's like know, it's yeah. like a a researcher's dream if you can find funding and interest in it because there's so right. many things we we don't know. But regarding their behavior and activity, sea snakes can be active both during the day and at night, uh, and they will sometimes, depending on where their range is, they might bask in the sunlight so come up come up to the surface a little bit more uh but when you go to study them they're just going to dive down right they don't want they don't want they don't want to be near you um but what's really cool if you watch videos of them swimming they basically use that paddle or or like tail to do a sideward zigzag or undulation pattern and for those listeners out there that haven't watched any videos of them swimming, I highly recommend it. Chris will put some on the show notes. They're beautiful, graceful swimmers in the ocean, and a lot of them have beautiful coloration patterns. So it was pretty mesmerizing this week when I was watching all these videos. Uh, but overall, it's definitely unanimously agreed that they're mild-tempered and docile and mostly harmless, even though they have this really potent venom, right? So, Mm -hmm. I mean, I'm not encouraging people to get close to them if they're snorkeling or diving, uh, but I also don't think we should propel the myths that they are out to bite people and get you and things like that. So just like all creatures, big, small, in the water, air, or land, maintain a safe distance from them, but I don't think that there's something to be feared. And I'm hopeful that people won't will 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 want to still save them and conserve them, even though they're a venomous species. Because uh, you should love all snakes, um, even the you know ones on land, regardless if they're a uh, constrictor or a venomous snake. And the same goes for uh, sea snakes as well. Amazing creatures. Now, to continue this story, you gave a little bit you know, a heads up earlier. Reproduction which is amazing. 
Oh, gosh. Yes. These are questions. That's why I love this podcast, Chris, is because Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. I find myself, as I start researching these species, asking questions, well, geez, if they they live in the water all their whole life, how do they lay their eggs? And I don't get, how do they breed in the water? And there's all these just really cool. And so true sea snakes that are in the marine environment their whole life, they're typically solitary but they do come together for breeding. And that can be any time of year, depending on where they live, what region they live in. And researchers think that they find each other through, yeah, some form of uh, chemo reception uh, within the water. And they don't know how, once again, several, several unknowns about sea snakes, which I, I find just fascinating, but they find each other. And when they breed, they basically entwine together where uh, the male has what's called a hemipenes that he uses for mating. And they are entwined for a while during the breeding process. So they have to come to the, the surface for air multiple times during a breeding session. And I don't know why, Chris, just that visual uh, either made me giggle or just kind of, wow, it's just like, wow, they're like super clever. Like they know that they need to breed and they're breeding right now, but they also need to breathe. Breathing is very important yes. <laughs> regardless of what activity <laughs> you are partaking in. And so uh, yes, yes. one study suggested that uh, the female sea snake seems to determine when the mating pair will take breaths of air. And then, of course, when the mating session is concluded. So, you know, yay for uh, female sea snake power. You got to love that. Got to give a shout out to that. Uh, And once the breeding has occurred, uh, the gestation period is going to be anywhere from five, six to seven, eight months, depending on the different species. And so, Chris, what's really unique about that, if you think of most species of snake on land, they lay eggs. Not all. We've talked about in the podcast, there's definitely certain species of snakes on land that give what we call live birth. Um, Mm -hmm. But one of the factors that separate true sea snakes from sea crates is that true sea snakes don't lay eggs. They give live birth to a few offspring at a time, anywhere from two to ten, depending on the species. Whereas sea crates go on land, lay eggs, the eggs hatch, and then they make their way, the the offspring make their way out to sea. Mm -hmm. But the cutest or coolest thing is that when true sea snakes are born, they're just like little miniature parents and they just swim off Mm -hmm. and they do their thing and they don't, they're not going to reach maturity until they're about two years old. So once again... That's why it's going to be harder for sea snake species to rebound if they are threatened. No, Angie, you make a great point. And, you know, again, still not a lot known, but, you know, we talk about conservation. We opened up the podcast, both of us talking about, you're talking about the critically endangered, you know, the, what the, the leaf scaled and the short nosed, you know, so those were the ones that we have, we thought were extinct, but aren't. So they're critically endangered. There's others that are classified as vulnerable. And, you know, not a lot is known about conservation as far as specific numbers. You know, I mean, that goes back, God, I don't know how many episodes ago. Every Us always talking about IUCN's job of trying to classify these animals. Very difficult. takes a lot of funding. And you're talking millions of species. So, 
you know, we obviously the research hasn't been done on all of these animals. Yeah, no, Chris, unfortunately not. Uh, I definitely picked up on the fact that the Crocker sea snake is vulnerable and several mm -hmm. species of the olive sea snake family are also listed as uh, least are listed as greater concern. The timmer species uh, is listed as endangered. So yeah, there's a few that we keep an eye on. But one of the one of the the facts that I really want to focus on, or just kind of share as we're wrapping things up here, is it's just mind boggling that one in five reptile species are potentially at risk of extinction, and many of these have thought to become extinct in, within the last fifty years. So I just, I mean, and that's reptiles across the board, not just sea snakes, but all reptiles. But still, when you're talking about reptiles as a species in general, they're in trouble and they need our attention. And they're not necessarily as fuzzy or well-promoted as a lot of the guys that you and I love, the lions and the rhinos and, mm -hmm, and things mm -hmm. like that. But Boy, boy, oh boy, do they, they certainly need our attention and they need help because there's so many threats. There's habitat loss, climate change, overharvesting for food, traditional medicines. And then, of course, with sea snakes, all the problems of the ocean are exasperated for them, right? Uh, pollution, yeah. climate change, uh, overfishing, things like that. So it's just, uh, it's just so important that we take, we look out for, reptiles in general, but these really unique marine reptiles. I mean, there's not, I mean, we kind of joked in the podcast how there's a lot of sea snake species. I mean, we could cover a sea snake a year on this podcast and they'd mm -hmm. be able to do that, right? It probably wouldn't have a lot. It'd probably be a short podcast uh, because yeah, yeah, there's not, yeah, a, yeah, yeah. not a lot of information on each of them. But so there are, there are a fair amount of them and, but in general, there's just not that many marine reptiles. They're, I mean, no, we need no, to protect right, them. That's yeah. so they're so cool. They just they were on land and they decided to go back into the ocean, or maybe it was vice versa. Maybe we don't even know. But at any rate, just they're just so cool. The things that they do to survive yeah. these marine environments and the way that they help out the ecosystem of the reefs uh, are really important. And we're going to be focusing more on reefs and uh, then in the next week or so to come. So hopefully we can get you excited about just how critical the reef ecosystems, corals, and all their, all their in inhabitants are. No, it, it is. And I mean, some of the pressures that they're faced is bycatch. That's one mm -hmm. study I read that, you know, off Australia, over 100,000 sea snakes are caught in bycatch, where at least a third of them are killed or die. Mm. And, that, and, and they believe that's even underreported. Sure. So that, that's a pressure that they're facing. You know, they're they're fished specifically for their meat and skins. I mean, they, they could be leather products, jewelry. Here we go again. Even in some countries or parts of the world, they think that they have they hold medicine, their mm -hmm. organs are. So, you know, it's they're facing a lot and the oceans are facing a lot. So again, that's why we wanted to highlight them. And you know, what organizations are there out there? I, I don't think I found one. Was there one? No, I, I didn't find any specific for sea snakes. Yeah. Uh, there was definitely some research funding for a few projects, either through a university mm. 
or organizations like SeaWorld had actually uh, donated some money to 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 learn more about these guys and to study them. But overall, I couldn't find a sea snake conservation organization. So once again, all you eager listeners out there, if you're looking for a part-time hobby, right? Uh, actually, probably be full-time. So uh, yeah. no, but in general, we're talking about oceans this month. And so if you're in Australia or in that region of the world, Oceania, I highly recommend you check out the Australian Marine Conservation Society. They can be found at www.marineconservation.org.au. And they also have a beautiful Facebook page with a large following and a lot of interactive, uh, really cool uh, photos and articles on there. And in a nutshell, the Australian Marine Conservation Society, or AMCS, it's the voice for Australia's oceans, right, where a lot of these sea snakes live. So they are dedicated to solely protecting the precious ocean wildlife. And they do this by having a group of committed scientists, educators, and advocates who have been defending and fighting for Australia's oceans for over 50 years. They have tons of volunteer opportunities and they have paid staff and they're basically tackling big issues of the ocean. And why I really wanted to highlight the Australian Marine Conservation Society is that they really work hard to protect critical reef systems. So of course they focus on the Great Barrier Reef on the eastern coast of Australia, but on the western coast they work in the Ningaloo, I think I'm saying that right, reef systems to help protect threatened species and those reefs in general. So it's a great organization of ocean lovers, uh, sea creature lovers, and there's just and there's just several ways to get involved. So go check them out at www.marineconservation.org.au. Chris will put uh, more information up on our show notes. And for all of our fans and listeners down under, this is this is a really really good well-reputable group of ocean conservation, wildlife, marine conservation uh, advocates. Yeah. Yeah. No, it's good stuff, Ange. And, you know, conservation tips again, this month is all about the oceans, you know, plastic free July. So a couple things you can do always again, buy a reusable water bottle. If you don't have one, go purchase one. Thank you. Just do it. Just do yes. it. I know someone yes. out there is looking at their, they, they bought a water, it, they're looking at it, and they're like, okay, I'm listening to you, Chris. I'm going to do it. Make a commitment to the ocean. We thank you. I know you're listening. I, I, I Same I thing it. for coffee. Yep. Same thing for coffee cups. Yep. Uh, get a travel coffee yes. mug. Uh, I have my travel straws. You can mm-hmm. obviously, I say no to any utensils or plastic cutlery that a cutlery. Yeah, I think I'm saying yeah. that right. Uh, at a restaurant, if I go and so... I just think it's, and we're all, we're spending a lot more time at home. So it's really a great mm-hmm. time to, to, so it's a really a great time to uh, just assess what you're using as far as a product. And there's so many products out there, at least, at least in North America that can now be purchased plastic free. So if it's yeah. dish soap or laundry soap, you can eat or shampoo, you can get a bar or you can get it in a, in a cardboard box. Mm-hmm. Um, you can, we're very, I'm very blessed where I live, uh, in Florida to have a store that's 
bulk everything. So you bring the contain, you bring your glass container, they fill up your detergent, your rice, your anything like that. So you don't have to have any plastic. It's uh, called life on plastic. The store is pretty awesome. So yeah, yeah. yeah, there, and if we would love, if you have any other solutions or ideas or just want to learn more, like I said, send us an email, talk to us on Facebook about it. You can join our all creatures, Facebook, group where we cover a lot of more things and details. Or once again, you can join us at Plastic Free July too, uh, to have a little bit more interactive space. Yep. 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 All right. And well, we'll be back in the oceans next week. I think people might know what we're going to do, but we'll see. We'll see if they can guess it. Uh, it's a, yeah, we better get to, <laughs> get to study I just say, it. It's going to be a you're tough making one. Me, yeah. You're making me anxious just thinking about how much work I have to do to learn about this sea animal. So yeah, it's yeah. going to be fun. It's going to be super yeah. fun. And it's this challenging is great for us, but it'll be awesome. Yeah, hopefully everybody uh, found a little bit more love in their heart for sea snakes. And I highly recommend just watching some cool YouTube videos. And uh, you can see all the colors and the patterns and, uh, and, and have a greater appreciation for them as well. All right. Take care. Thanks, Chris. Bye, everyone. Listen, learn, share. Join the movement at allcreaturespod.com.